Hello, and welcome to the Movie Spotlight on the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, we'll have a spoiler-filled discussion about a movie we think you'll enjoy. In this episode, I am joined by my sister Kay, and we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion on Rogue One. This is, I think the subtitle was, A Star Wars Film. I thought it was The Hunt for R2-D2. I thought it was how many of the classic scenes can you kind of reference or homage in one single film. It's funny you say that, because there was one scene where I sat there thinking, wow, how very Star Wars. Good, good. It was a Star Wars film. I think they were going for that. Well, but it was funny. They just leapt out at me as just a, if some other film had done it, I would have thought they were doing an homage to this franchise. And it felt strange to feel like an homage to a different franchise within their own franchise. It was funny because there were a lot of places where I thought they were very, very clearly doing references to specific moments in Star Wars A New Hope, or other sorts of, you know, other aspects of different films. There was a uh, a Han Solo is going to get the Millennium Falcon to go where he wants it to go moment. There was that. There was an aspect of the shield generator around that final planet that reminded me of in, might have been the Phantom Menace, when young Anakin goes up in the, the fighter, uh, you know, uh, whatever... Mm-hmm. It wasn't an X-Wing, but you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. The fighter ship and, and you know, takes down a bunch of things or whatever. It was different, but evocative of. Yeah. And I think they got a lot of the tone and style right for a Star Wars film. But this is not one that I would say is kind of a iconic or quintessential Star Wars film. No, they, they did a good job bringing the cargo fighter or the cargo pilot into the rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one scene. But you could argue that's reminiscent of Finn's journey. Yes. In, um, um, yes. Whatever the, the most the recent. The Force Awakens. The Force Awakens. Thank you. Yes. There's so many names for them now. It's hard to keep them. Yeah. Well, um, but there was one scene that actually grated on my nerves where I guess uh, Cassian was telling Jen, you know, some of us have been in this since we were six. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a sec, we've been told she, I mean, she lost her family to the rebellion and then she was raised by someone who's too militaristic and too deeply in the rebellion for the rebellion alliance to f- consider him politically correct enough but to th- be mere rebellion. I think that scene was supposed to be evocative of Han getting in Leia's face and giving her a hard time in one of the films, you know, um, because uh, Cassian was very much supposed to be kind of the Han Solo of the group. Mm-hmm. In this case, we had a- an android essentially playing the Chewbacca role. Yeah. We had the the two guys from the monastery or whatever it was essentially kind of filling the the role of the droids, if you will. I liked those two guys. They were good. I liked them. Uh, I don't think they really got particularly established. No, I thought they could have had um, a better journey, but I liked their characterization. 
they seemed to be Jedi who had had their own both journey with the Force, but I almost want to say falling out with the Force. I, I took them not, well, I took them as believers in the Force, but not Jedi per se. Yeah. Well, and I guess I keep coming back to Jedi because of that, that religion aspect to the Force and the Jedi. And I never know the, the terminology. Well, I don't think they've ever clarified the religious side of the terminology. There's a Jedi Master, there's a Padawan, so there's that, but that's more of the, the warrior side, if you will. And even in the, tre- uh, the prequel trilogy, where we get to see a lot of the Jedi Council and stuff, we see them more as a governing body and a almost legislative sort of a thing, and no real sense of, of the religious aspect. Or yeah. the, the faith or, or philosophy or what have you. So they had an opportunity to explain that a little better here and failed. These were guys who very clearly had a relationship with the Force. But whether or not it was a, a solid relationship or a consistent relationship. Well, and I don't think it was good enough that they ever would have been Jedi Masters. Yeah. Yeah, well, and maybe that's the difference. I didn't consider them either Padawan or Masters. I, I simply did, considered them middle of the road. I didn't even consider them on that path. Okay. To yeah. me, it's it's not that they are the, 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 the Jedi, but the support crew around the Jedi. Yeah. Because their citadel, whatever the hell it was, uh, was apparently where they mined the crystals that apparently power the, the Force or the, uh, the lightsabers. Yeah, yeah. Which presumably is the little crystal that mm-hmm. uh, Jen Jen had, and I don't know. There were aspects of this where the whole movie felt a little bit like a retcon because it's uh, they, Star Wars has always gotten a little bit of grief for you build this planet size weapon mm-hmm. and one well placed torpedo can blow the whole thing up. Mm-hmm. And this was an attempt to explain that very much. This was an attempt to explain why R two D two had the plans. Why he had the plans, why the the one shaft to Mm -hmm. be able to make the shot could happen. Yeah. But simultaneous to them getting the plans, broadcasting the plans there at the end, they're in this huge communication tower that has this million mile drop, again, evocative of what we've seen in Cloud Mm -hmm. City and some others, when they are having to to climb the thing and the guys coming in from the the other side uh, opening or whatever, that was evocative of uh, Han and Leia having to do the swing across uh, in in A New Hope. Yeah. There are just a lot of those things where, I don't want to say it's, it's uh, cliche, because that's not quite right, but... If you don't walk across a bridge with no railings, is it Star Wars? Well, again, there at the end, you know, you got to realign the, the deflector dish or communication yeah. dish. So you've got to go way out on this thing, this outcropping. I mean, they had to build this bridge out to nowhere mm. to make the controls for that more inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Just so she'd have something to try to have to run back, get, you know, shot out from under her, that sort of a thing. And it reminds me of Galaxy Quest where they, they very much lampooned the who builds these things you know, aspect of, well, it's for dramatic tension and stuff. Well, and one of the things that in terms of, okay, what was it Stephen Amell said at the convention? Good decisions make for bad television. Bad decisions make for good television. Okay, I really think that that was a theme of this movie. 
Well, certainly bad architecture makes for good Star Wars. Well, no, but I think that the key to good Star Wars is preemptively killing the people who are about to give you information you need to hear. There is that, yeah. You know, because how many times did someone kill the person who's about to tell them, if only you knew this, it would save you an entire movie or a whole lot of grief or... There's a definite short-sightedness and rash action will cost you tremendously in the future. At some point, we're going to get to where special effects and uh, computer-generated stuff is not just so possible to do at home, because it already is, but so easy and so trivial to do, Mm. that somebody could basically do a, a parody of the Star Wars movies, the whole franchise and timeline, mix it in with a little bit of a time travel, almost a looper-esque sort of a thing, where somebody goes and makes just one little change to the timeline. Yeah. And suddenly the whole thing kind of, oh, geez, it was a fairly boring universe, actually. Okay, special effects. Let's slice and dice special effects into a variety of categories. Okay. Uh, planets, environments on planets, architecture on planets. I liked that. By and large, I thought they did a, good, did a very good job on that. There was a few aspects where it bordered on the ludicrous. Uh, you had this Monument Valley-looking place, and then you've got on the top of this one plateau, the city. And this thing had to be, I don't know, thousands of feet up. Yet the people on on the, the, the mesa or whatever, below or whatever, the ground level, could walk over and suddenly they're in the city. Not how did they get up there? Yes. Well, I loved in that Monument Valley-ish area, you pull back and one of these huge mountainish things looks like a fallen Jedi laying next to his extended lightsaber. It did, but by the time I recognized what that was supposed to be, they cut away. Yes. And they had one or two similar things in A Force Awakens where you've got the the crash star destroyer or whatever, and again, you, you pull out and you can absorb it or whatever, but then again, you cut away. Mm-hmm. So, I, I by and large, I like what they did. Some of it was very cool. Now, one of the things that, uh, to use the wrong wording to describe, because I don't know the correct wording, but the hydroelectric... Um, the lava dam. Yeah, that was beautiful. It was great, but... It's like, well, how yes. ongoing is this lava flow? But then there was the other one, and I forget which place it was in, but there was the uh, the water, f- there was the, the, the uh, kind of the island base or whatever that had a, a, a moat around it with dams. I mean, this thing was recessed below the water level or whatever. Yeah, it was the final place, which I can't think of oh, the name it was, of. Was it the one here with the... Uh, the the tall tower. Communication tower? Yeah. Okay, that was the one then. Yeah. And I mean, it had some great waterfalls and stuff like that. It was very cool. Again, almost a little evocative of... What was the uh, the planet uh, Naboo? Yes. Um, that Padme was from and stuff. Mm-hmm. Again, they love the waterfalls. They do. But I mean, it's scenic. It's beautiful. It's very cool looking. Mm-hmm. Um, that whole communication tower array looked like almost an Abu Dhabi sort of a thing. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, very uh, nice beach resortish sort of a place to be. They do awesome futuristic architecture. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think that's that's one of the strengths of it. But I did think that was actually 
one of the things about this movie that early on set my mind going towards the being evocative of the other films. How so? Because when we start, the place they're at, that farming thing, Mm. seemed like a moisture farm. Yes. Fresh from from Star Wars A New Hope. Yes. There are places where at the communication array, they they kind of go in a little bit and they're in like an almost quasi-jungle-ish thing. Mm. Kind of like we had the speeder bike race in one of the things. Yes. You know, you get to where you've got There were one or two places I was like, where are the Ewoks? And things like that because the environments felt so familiar. Or the, uh, again, where we had the the fallen Jedi kind of landscape or whatever. Again, that was evocative both of A Phantom Menace yeah. and of uh, Force Awakens. Yeah. So there were aspects of that where I felt they were being evocative of so many different aspects of Star Wars that it, it, it kind of like you get in a video game. Well, it's funny you say evocative of the other movies because my next slice and dice on special effects, the ships, particularly, um, I guess, the Star Destroyers, Mm -hmm. the white ones. The big triangular white ones, yeah, yeah. Some of the ships, to me, look too much like footage from the films from the 70s. I think if you're going to do a film like this, which is set immediately before A New Hope, there is an aspect of you want it to feel like it was made at the same time. I want the ships to look like they did, but I'm not sure I want to feel like I'm looking at that footage. Being... I, I didn't feel we were looking at that footage. Because it, if you look back at the original Star Wars... Not the graininess, but it it was like that. those effects didn't, for me, blend... With the effects from the planets. Does that make sense? I think the planets tended to be a bit more vibrant. And what got me with the space scenes was they were going for very dramatic lighting. There was that. It just. There, you go from you can't mm-hmm. see anything to the Star Destroyer comes around the, sh- you know, out of the shadow of the planet. And suddenly it's it's this bright white kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So I think they overplayed the the lighting a little too much there. But for me, it worked well because when I think of the original Star Wars, there's the original original where you would have the, the literally you could see the mat cut around the ships. Yeah. And then you've got the digital uh, version of it, which is still very good. And both, I think, for, for their times uh, were landmarks. Uh, for me, I thought it worked by and large very well. I think the Star Destroyers were probably not as good as many of the other ships. I guess there were things like going into the costuming. There were aspects of Darth Vader's costume that were exactly like I remember his costume being. And yet it looked clunky and older and... It looked ripe for the most part. But I think where they may have made a mistake is the kind of the collar of the helmet was like above things and i don't know if the cape was above it before or whatever that part where it met his his neck and torso mm-hmm. and stuff felt off i could just be misremembering it didn't feel iconic it felt almost like a like you would see this person as a at a convention i i guess to me there were a few things that felt like they worked so hard to be true to the films from the 70s they if they'd polished it a little bit up i wouldn't have minded interesting does that I, make sense I, I hear where you're coming from, but I didn't feel that way at all. If anything, I thought there were a few places where it felt like they had used a little too much technology. There were a couple of places where we saw 
kind of the uh, the black armor stormtrooper-ish guys. Yeah. And I'm thinking, are these droids? They look like they're CG'd in. Yeah. And I think that's part of it for me is them next to Darth Vader, it, it didn't mesh for me. They didn't all feel like they were from one period. Well, and there was something about this Vader that, from a physicality, mm. didn't match. David Prowse is a very tall, um, noticeable man. I don't know if it was the height, the costuming, the body language. There was something. Yeah. I mean, they had James Earl Jones do the voice, and that's the only viable choice, I think. I yeah. mean, you either get that or you get a knockoff. But, I mean, having the original voice of Vader helped a lot. But that scene was visually off enough for me that it kind of undercut his presence in the film. Yeah. And he was interacting with the guy who also spent a lot of time interacting with Tarkin. And when we first saw Tarkin, that was another one where, you know, I'd like to see a, a picture mm. of the actor who they got to play Tarkin. Yeah. Because they had a lot of things in the credits referencing Peter Cushing, who played that character in the original film. Yeah. And it looked just like him. Yeah. Now, maybe they found somebody who looks a lot like him, or they digitally enhanced. I'm willing to bet they digitally enhanced. Well, and I mean, the combination of the two. I mean, it just, yeah. Well, and, you know, spoiler-filled episode, but the way the movie ended, they found a very good actress for the final scene. Um, I'm wondering how much of that was the actress and how much of that was... Digital effects. Digital effects. Yeah. And... They'd already pioneered with um, Jar Jar and stuff, mm. digital characters. Yeah. But to get to where you can take the likeness of a past actor or a younger version of the actor mm. and reuse them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was seeing some footage on YouTube uh, recently, and I felt they overplayed it a little, but it was basically somebody saying, it's getting to where you can't trust what you see. Mm. We're not there yet, but we're really close. And they showed footage of two presidents. It was just basic footage of them not saying anything. And that was in kind of the the bottom uh, left. In the center right was somebody on camera who was basically doing very wild gestures with mm. their face that were then being mapped onto that president's face in the upper left. That's creepy. Yeah. And that's more or less what we're seeing here at, at times. Yeah. But it gets to where, if we switch franchises for just a second, there's that Star Wars Continues YouTube stuff I've told you we've Star watched. Trek, yeah. Star Trek. Uh, where they have different actors kind of continuing episodes of the original Star Trek. We're not that far, if far at all, from the technology where they could do that and replace those actors with the likenesses of the original cast. Yeah. I think we've also got the technology, because I think Google has it, because uh, again, another YouTube video, maybe it was the same one, where you could take what somebody is saying and recast it in the voice of somebody else if you've got enough voice samples. Well, which was the Marvel Cinematic Universe movie where... Um, uh, it was um, uh, Civil War, where we get the young... Yeah, um, Robert Downey Jr. Ro Robert Downey Jr. So again, we've, we've shown... That Hollywood has the technology soon, it'll be fairly available, just like morphing technology was. Yeah. From you know T two and stuff. So there were one or two places where I thought that was you know I was sure they were using it, but it was one of those I, I wasn't positive they were. It wasn't yeah. obvious. Yes. 
And I guess that's the thing I really appreciate. Again, slice and dice. Which parts of the effects do I think were really great? That blew me away because I didn't look at and say, wow, I can see they're using effects and appreciate. I was left thinking, I really can't tell if they're using effects or not. And that's why I'm so blown away. Whereas some of the stuff with the ships, I'm like, well, okay, we're not shooting footage of spaceships. I mean, I know this is effects, but I I wish it had been, I think some of the stuff we saw in some of the Star Trek movies, for instance, I liked a little better. I'll put it that way. Well, let's roll back to the Phantom Menace and we had the droids versus the the clones. Mm -hmm. Clearly all digital. Mm Mm-hmm. Here, we got a lot of things that were probably digital, certainly all the spaceships and stuff like that, but nothing we're just looking at it. It's like, yeah, this is clearly coming out of a computer. There was there was no film in any camera ever for this. Yeah. But I think Star Wars is a franchise that just historically has always been you know, pushing the boundaries of what the technology can do. And that may be a problem for them. I expect an awful lot out of them because they've always pushed the boundaries and always been so good. Well, and this movie did not disappoint from a, a effects level. There were a few aspects story-wise I think they could have and should have done better. Again, evocative a little too much of too many scenes from the previous films. Didn't feel that any of these characters were multi-movie characters. I realized pretty early on... If we haven't seen them before, they're dying this movie. That's why we haven't seen them before. The one phrase that kept uh, bouncing through my mind while watching this was a quote from uh, A New Hope where they're explaining we've got the Death Star plans. And I think the phrase, the, 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 the quote was, many Bothans died getting us this. Basically, the, the guys who went to go get this, mm, yeah. high death rate. Yeah. This is the film of them getting it. Yeah. Not going to yeah. be many survivors. Yeah. And the way this film ends with um, uh, Cassian and, and uh, Jen or whatever, essentially on the beach about to be obliterated. And then we kind of cut up to the spaceship sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the exact shot that started Star Wars, but it's close enough that imagine if that film had started with who is this random couple getting obliterated? And, oh, we're over here now. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a little bit of a, um, you know, downer aspect to this. Because, again, don't get too attached to these characters. It's a one-film film. Yeah. Which I'm fine with. There's a certain amount of have a story, get in, tell it, get out, be done. Yes. But I think there's versus a, we know this is going to be a trilogy or an eight-movie deal or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's also, I think, an art to tell a story, have characters that are so captivating, you would like to spend more time with them. Mm-hmm. But not that that story has to continue. Yes. You know, other adventures of them or some such. And then the trick is to then have other adventures of them without it being sequelitis of, oh, well, we're doing the same plot, but we reverse this, that, and the other kind of a deal. Yeah. So I I would say by and large, um, the effects were good. Uh, Obviously, we talked about the architecture. Uh, The costuming, by and large, I thought was good. There were a few things here and there. Um, we have one or two scenes that just had the plethora of aliens. I'm starting to feel like if it's a Star Wars movie, it must have what I refer to as the cantina scene. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I watched, uh, again, on on YouTube, the Renegades, uh, Star Trek uh, Mm -hmm. stuff. They'd actually gotten, you know, part one or whatever of some of the stuff. And this is with, um, 
uh, the guy who plays Pavel Chekhov, uh, Tim Ross is in Ennis. And they're doing this one scene, it's set at Conway's Bar, at just this bar at this, this space station kind of a deal. And it's cantina scene-itis. Yeah. And I'm like, this is Star Wars, you're doing Star Trek. Yeah. You got it wrong. Yeah. It would be as if in one of these films, we saw a lot of guys with phasers, with kind of the standard Star Trek looking costumes, or the, the pointed ears, the brow ridge stuff that's a hallmark of, of Trek. Yeah. The Trek universe is devoid of droids, is fairly homogenous of uh, bipeds and how they look, whereas Star Wars has a almost timeless technology, because mm. I think the technology from when we start up at the earliest point of A Phantom Menace to the, the most recent things we've seen in A Force Awakens, which is, you know, generations... Technology hadn't really changed at all. Subtle improvements. Improvements to Darth Vader's hand, Darth Vader's suit, subtle improvements. From from Darth Vader being a young kid to, you know, his his grandson at that point mm-hmm. in time. So again, I think multiple generations. Compare that to what happened during the lifetime of, of our grandparents. Oh, I yeah, like I said, it's Horse subtle and buggy improvements. to man on the moon and then some. Yeah. So yeah, subtle improvements, but not Would, even within our own lifetimes. Yeah. When we were kids, you could not record a television show. Mm-hmm. You watched it live or you missed it, it. Before VHS. Now you can stream the stuff off the internet. You can communicate video communicate with people around the world. Yeah. And and that's that's just part of the the way Star Wars is. There's nothing right or wrong about yeah. it. Um, matter of fact, it would be a little disconcerting if we watched a film and they had the equivalent of a holodeck or other techno babble that, that Star Trek has. Just yeah. like I find it off-putting when Star Trek has the cantina scenes. You know, it's funny because as much as this was a... The Rebel Alliance sent them to do these things and this was very much a Star Wars film... How long did we wait until we saw any sign a lightsaber? We didn't see it until we got Vader there at the end. Yeah. So essentially we saw it moments before A New Hope. Yeah. Because I I literally think you could cut from the end of this to the beginning of A New Hope and maybe a few minutes to an hour have passed in story time. Because we're in the point where the Jedi Council has fallen and there are no Jedi. Again, that's long since past. Yeah, but that's the period we're in, right? Yeah, well, yeah. The Jedi have pretty much been completely extinguished uh, as far as the Sith know, which is Vader and the Empire uh, Emperor. Um, and yet we've got the religious order that supported the Jedi, whatever we're supposed to call them, who are still mining the stones that power the lightsabers. Well, and the fallacy of that goes back to a really unfortunate line in the original Star Wars, where I think it was Tarkin was giving uh, Vader grief for the ancient religion. You know, that's all behind us. We're more evolved now, kind of a tone to it. Mm-hmm. Yet here they are having literally, at that, you know, days before, having been mining that, that you know, holy order or whatever for, for the, the gemstones to power the Death Star. Yeah. But it went from... You know, there being Jedi all over the galaxy known and feared or whatnot and respected to a generation or two later, you know, 
Uh, I thought that was just stories. Yeah. Well, the Jedi have gone into hiding, according to a line of dialogue at the end. Uh, here? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Jedi has gone into hiding. Yeah. Obi-Wan was the only one left at this point. Yoda had been presumed, you know, dead. Well, but the way they said it, I assumed that they figured they knew of one in hiding. They hoped there were others. They definitely knew. And this was setting up. There are a couple of places where when we first see Jimmy Smith, it's like, okay, at some point he's got to go back to Alderaan to go get obliterated. Yeah. And sure enough, he does. And he sets up Leia to mm-hmm. go find this this Jedi, you know, Obi-Wan. Um, so there are a few things here and there that I, I knew had to be in the film. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. It. It makes sense. I'll admit I was a little disappointed by the scenes on the ship that Leia was in there at the end. So was I. Because there were a couple of times where it's like, man, they are clearly sacrificing a lot of these guys, and stupidly so. Yes. Why yeah. was there the one spot at near the airlock where they were getting the communication thing onto a, a the equivalent of a floppy disk? They mm-hmm. had to go race down to the bridge, I guess, where Leia was. Well, and they're acting like they're the only ship receiving the information when the Admiral, who the first time I heard his name, I thought he was Admiral Radish. Um, no, I think it was Reddit as in the uh, the internet site. That makes more sense. See? I don't know. Radish makes sense. <laughs> um, but they're acting like they're the only ship that could have gotten the transmission. Whereas the other ship has gotten it and left with it. so there It were, was unclear who was getting it and, and whatnot. There were a few things at that point. That, well, and that Admiral is also very much like Admiral Akbar. Yeah. Um, it's a trap. Yeah. But I thought the casting they did for the Rebels to try to match what we had seen in the 70s Star Wars mm, film mm-hmm. did a pretty good job, actually. I liked, well, like I said, I liked the two guys who were in touch with the Force Mm -hmm. because they did a good job of standing by each other and they did a good job with that. We can tell when somebody has kind of the the aura of good and the line like, did he have the the look of a killer? Well, the funny thing is they set those two up that if they wanted to do a story set 20 years prior... Yeah. With those two, they could. Yeah. And arguably should. Yeah. Because those two seemed to have had an interesting path that had gotten them there. And like I said, their connection to the Force, like he knew she was wearing the necklace that had the stone that could power the lightsaber. Yeah. That That connection to the Force. So I liked them. But the other ones I liked were the ones who came with Cassian at the end, who said, you know, we did all these things that were difficult that were morally questionable that felt bad but we did them at the time because we did them in the name of the rebellion because it was for a greater cause Mm -hmm. and because we believed the ends justified the means but if the rebellion's collapsing if we're turning tail and running if that suddenly makes us feel like all these things that we felt horrible doing were now for nothing yeah and we can't look ourselves in the mirrors. We'd rather go out fighting for what we believe in. And if you're telling us there's still a chance and we're giving up for no reason. You know, that's something where I wish they had shot that scene of Caspian giving that speech and they're kind of flight out differently. If instead of focusing so much on him with the guys just kind of lost in the background. Yeah. If we had more of a, a moving shot 
we actually got to see each of these guys get their face, get to, you know, them nodding kind of an agreement. Something between that and on the, the way over, feel like we're getting to know them. Something to where it would feel like, yeah, I know this is most of the way through the film, but were this the beginning of the film, this is our cast. These are our heroes. I've been watching some uh, murder mystery shows, a variety of them, with our parents. And one of the shows we've been watching is from the 80s. And you watch it, and there are three, maybe four people, other than the person who ends up having done it, who have lines of dialogue. And you sit there going through at the commercial breaks with who you think did it, who you think did it. And basically you're saying, well, it could be the guy who said this, or it could be the guy who said that. And then we're watching shows that are much more current. And there's the guy who did it, and there's the other person who had a line of dialogue. And you feel like, basically... What, they couldn't pay someone else to be a red herring? Yeah, the the murder mystery shows where you've got the obvious suspect, it's clearly not going to be them, so you've got to have had the other person you talked to for two minutes at the beginning Yeah. to go back to, but yeah, because of the budget cuts. Yeah, and there was an aspect here where I felt like we only paid two guys in the background to talk. I don't even think they need to talk. I think literally if you'd shot it differently. Yeah. Where they, they, they're quiet the whole time, but we see them. Yeah. We get to, oh, I, I, I could recognize him in a crowd now. Well, and if different guys had been reacting differently when Caspian had been saying, you know, some of us are assassins and some of us are thieves and some of us were smugglers. And if guys had been... Definitely you, not proud. If you had but, seen one of the guys with his knife of, I've done things I'm not proud of. Yeah. Well, he must have been one of the assassins. Yeah. This guy looks like one of the smugglers. Him, a thief, that's a spy. Yeah. Something to where they had some semblance of more than just warm bodies. Yeah. And yeah, that might have been a little harder to do. It might have meant they needed to have the same guys there as they had later in the beach doing the fighting or whatever. But it's... Background direction is is an art and there are some people who do it incredibly well and there are some people who don't know it's an art to me it's it's beyond just that i think that's a key aspect it's really around how the entire thing was was blocked and framed that's definitely part of it but if you watch some tv shows uh they basically tell a person sit at that desk other tv shows it's they go ahead and tell them, you don't just have to sit at the desk. You've got filing to do, and you can move between the desk and the file cabinets. Do this job. Make yes. it look like this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there was an aspect of that where I usually felt the people in the background at the Rebel base or whatever had their business to be doing. Yeah. Well, So but, it felt like a, a realish thing in that respect. Yeah, but in that shot, nobody moved. And I don't just mean the nodding and that kind of thing. Nobody seemed to get uncomfortable with his pointing out that all the things they'd done and step back or step forward. Yeah, I was going to say they didn't even feel personally motivated other than this guy says we're doing it, so I guess we are. We have been assigned to stand on this X and told to stay on this X. Yeah. And as you say, that's the blocking, but that's the background direction. No, and absolutely, I think that needed to be worked on. Yeah. But imagine how those scenes would have played out, that one in particular, if they had spent another day or two 
mm-hmm. given each guy just here's a backstory here's your attitude here's yeah how we're going to use you later or whatever so you are going to be doing a little bit more with the gun you're going to be doing a little bit more with this or whatever and you guys are in the moment and we're actually going to spend a little time going over mm-hmm. the camera or whatever with you guys you know yeah. kind of a to where the as a viewer it's not just it's it's Caspian and, and about twenty guys behind him. It's it's oh the guy with the beard. Here's the big tall guy. Here's the guy with the scar. Here's whatever. Yeah. And it's it's something that we have seen done in some TV shows. And I'm going to point to probably Voyager and uh, Deep Space Nine from Star Trek as good examples where they did a good job of community building. Mm-hmm. I would got- also say Falling Skies on community building. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We got to know the different people mm-hmm. in the group. And that's over yeah. a long TV show, so they've got more time. But here, you've already paid them for the film. Yeah. You may need to pay them another day or two, whatever. It's yeah. not like it's trivial or something, but it would have made it, it would have made the loss of these guys... Resonate. Resonate, yeah. Yeah. They were they were props versus characters. None of them were named. I was frustrated with Stargate Universe in a way I couldn't put words to until we watched Falling Skies. Mm-hmm. And Falling Skies built community in a way Stargate Universe never did. And they both were doing that there are two sections of our community, civilians and military. Even with Falling Skies, there were a couple of people who, I don't know, were ever so much killed off as just faded away. Yeah. And that's the nature of TV shows. You're mm-hmm. not going to keep an extra yeah. or a, a quasi, you know, recurring or whatever in perpetuity. Although there are some shows that seem to be able to do that. Yeah. With a movie like this, again, we knew, I, I knew it's like, well, these these are the Bothans who die or whatever it was. You yeah. Know? Yeah. The, these guys probably not coming back and they know it. But the fact that they, the director and writer didn't try to get us the least bit really invested in them yeah. bothered me a little bit. Yeah. Um, overall, though, it was a fun film. It uh, was entertaining, but it wasn't... It was shallow. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to say that because there were things like Jen's parents telling her, you know, trust the Force, follow the Force. But we never knew why. Yeah. Why did she have the stone with the connection to the Force? We never knew why. There were so many things that I felt were alluded to, touched on, and then, if not forgotten, just never mined for the value they had. Yeah, there was some setup without payoff and things of that nature. And it's... Uh, shallow is probably the, uh, the right term because I liked it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was Star Wars-ish. But it wasn't Star Wars. Yeah. And I'm not going to say all the other films have, have hit the mark either. But there was something that the original Star Wars and New Hope did that, you know, sure, it's a little goofy here and there and a few things that we can look back and say, yeah, it doesn't hold up to, you know, what, 30, 40 years later or something. But when Mark Hamill, I mean, my great Mark Hamill story, when I confessed to him I hadn't seen Star Wars, he told me, just remember whenever anyone tells you it's a great movie, it was a great movie at its time. It was an amazing movie at its time. It was the story that, the right story at the right time with the right effects. There were heroes, there were scoundrels, there were villains. And they they took an average farm boy and helped him find his inner hero. Mm -hmm. Helped him find 
his calling, his true path? Well, it was a wonderful blend of the hero's journey and a John, John Ford Western. You know, whereas here, even if you tell me that we have several characters who took that journey, okay, that's great, they're dead. And it's really hard when there's no payoff within the movie for the mission they went on. Okay, along those lines, was the concept of this movie inherently flawed? What do we come out of it with that we didn't know or have going into it? Well, and that's why I said it should have been subtitled Finding R2-D2. Well, we don't even see him there at the end. We get a shot, a cameo of him in, in C-3PO at one point in on Yavin or whatever. And I'm not even sure that's where uh, C-3PO should have been. I think he should have been with Luke. Oh, that's right. Luke didn't buy him yet. No, because at this point yeah. he was with uh, Senator... Um, uh, yeah, Leia's dad. Leia, yeah. Yeah. Organa, Senator Organa yeah. had gotten them at the end of the, the prequel trilogy, wiped them, um, and this was right before they got the handover. Yeah. But it was one of those things that we knew they were going to have the the plans. This is just backstory to fill in a gap of, of things we already knew the resolution of. Yeah. Well, okay, not to spoil spoilers, but... We watched, I want to say, Phantom Menace, mm -hmm. and then we watched the deleted scenes with the introductions. That's the one, right? I don't think it was no, Phantom it Menace. Phantom. It was the next one. It was the love story one. Yeah. And all of the, the deleted scenes were like, yeah, I don't know why we shot this. It, it didn't. It blew the pacing. It, does, it wasn't needed. We cut all these things. It was the entire love story. Yeah. It did not contribute to the story he wanted to tell. Yeah. And I think that is one of the things where I'm starting to differ from George Lucas is I'm not always going in expecting the story that he wants to tell me. Well, I've always had this theory, and, and we've discussed it a few times, about television shows where, and I think it's the same is, is a little bit true for movies, particularly those with sequels like Star Wars, where there is the story the creator sets out Mm -hmm. to, to, to do. Mm -hmm. Then there's the story we view and consume. And if, if it's ongoing, such as a TV show or series of movies, then it becomes the story that they think we've, they're, they're continuing. Mm -hmm. And there comes a point with what we're consuming it with they're generating diverges. Yeah. So there's the, the story they wrote, the story we saw, the story they thought they wrote, and then the story that they really wanted to write. Yeah. And there are a couple of shows where it's like, you look at the the last season versus the first season, it's like, how how did they get there? Person of Interest. Person of Interest is a great example. It's not the only one, though. No, no, but it's a prime example yeah. of a show that just took a turn from where it started um, because it started very episodic. It went to very serial. Well, not just that. It started as a very basic police procedural part mm -hmm. of the mystery being are they good or they bad and, and went it's to very conspiracy AIs and conspiracy thing at the end yeah with star wars i think because it became it, it was the star wars and dark horse did a really interesting eight issue limited series where they took some of the original um concept drawings the original uh script and did an eight issue series mm -hmm. along those lines and you could see, oh, well, this is what was going to become Luke. This mm -hmm. was going to become Obi-Wan. This is, mm -hmm. you know, this, that, and the other. But it was also very much not 
what we know as Star Wars. Yeah. But I think there's a certain reverberation or resonance, I think. Every property, I think, has a certain resonance frequency that if you get in sync with as a creator, it's like, man, yeah, they've they've nailed it. This is iconic. But the problem is part of that is is as much on the creator as on the audience. And what the creator thinks the resonant frequency is versus the audience can be diametrically opposed. Well, I think one of the things with Rogue One is if you're going to tell me a story that fills in a gap, but is telling me everything I either knew or assumed, Mm -hmm. you're basically asking me to sit down and watch a documentary or a historical film. I know the ending, etc. So... I'm going to compare it now to a documentary or a historical film. When I watch those, I go into them because I want somebody to tell me something I didn't actually know. I want to be surprised by a revelation of, wow, I thought I knew, but I only knew half an hour's worth of information and you gave me 45 minutes or an hour and i'm fascinated there was so much more to this than i realized let me toss another film out there along those lines okay where again here's a story with rogue one that we know the ending of Mm -hmm. presumably most of these people die but they get the plans the death star eventually gets destroyed let's take another film that's based on real events Mm -hmm. and therefore we we either know or could easily know the, the basic ending of, if not the details, uh, Apollo 13. Mm-hmm. Ron Howard did an amazing job on that because it wasn't a matter of what happens, but it's the watching it happen, getting sucked into the drama of it happening. Mm-hmm. I, that, as I recall, was like an hour and a half, two and a half hours, three. I mean, it was he, a long movie. He took us on the journey with us, with them, but he also made us realize that... We only knew half the story because what we knew was the earthbound half. We could imagine the up in space half, but he took us in there with them. Not only did he do that, but it was, you know, particularly by the time the movie came out, the information was there to be had, but Mm -hmm. it was such a compelling story. It was so engaging. You cared. It wasn't do these guys live or die, but it's how do they live or die, you know. Yes. How did they do it? Here... There was there was an aspect of that, mm-hmm. but nowhere near. Wow, I you know is is one of the the guys in that group of twenty gonna? Uh, who, who knows? Who cares? Mm-hmm. You know. Well, it's not even who knows who cares. It's none of them needs to because we know none of them got the information hand delivered. Someone else did it for them. There were a few times at the rebel base where we get a couple of of you know, lines in the background or whatever that, that reference, you know, a, a, a Captain Antilles mm. or, you know, a few other names that are recognizable. But those are Easter eggs. Yeah. You know, even the characters that are from the Star Wars film uh, at the Rebel base never leave the Rebel base to get in danger. Yeah. So it was a little uh, disappointing is not the right word there, but it comes back to was this a flawed concept then? If we already know going in, they're going to get the plans and... Yeah, they're probably not going to survive. And if so, it doesn't really matter because they don't become anything. Well, The Great Escape, another great film. Mm-hmm. But again, it's another film where not only do we know the ending, we know it's pretty darn tragic. I think you can do it without having to necessarily reveal with new information or something. It's a question of do you have characters that are so compelling to watch? Mm-hmm. And that was one of the 
there's also a how close did they come to surviving. Yeah, whereas here, not even close at all. Yeah. There's an aspect of this film, though, that happened very early on where not only visually are they striking the same notes, but but from a soundtrack perspective, they are literally yeah. hitting the same notes. Well, when, when Vader comes in, dun, 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 you yeah. know, you get the same it's it's a john williams score it's 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 the star wars score you would be foolish and silly not to leverage the hell out of it yeah but it also came back to the i've i've heard this before i've seen this before and it's hard i think with the amount of of ground and story they tried to cover here to get something that is so one, the story would have had to be tightly written for us to be just on the edge of our seat the entire time. Yeah. And and two, the characters would have had to have been a lot more engaging. And they had to they had to introduce everybody. They had to set everybody up. They had to resolve this. I mean, would was there a point at which Caspian was so heroic that you wanted him to survive? Or was he so mortal, so human, so flawed that his sacrificing so others could survive is just fine. I never got a good grasp on his motivation, to be honest, other than he'd lost a lot and he wanted the Empire to pay. When his heroic moment came there at the end of, of shooting the guy after we thought he had fallen to his death a few feet below, the minute I saw the guy on the platform, it's like, he, he, he survived that. Give him a few minutes, he'll come up at the dramatic time. I never particularly warmed to him. I never particularly warmed to. Uh, I think he to most of them. I think he had a Han shot first moment early on. Oh, absolutely! But and that that made him hard to to see as the great hero of the film that you wanted to come out as the hero for me at least. Yeah, I think. That's one of the other things where the film didn't pull together the way it could have was the choice of protagonists. I mean, he was very much more Han than Luke. Oh, he was totally Han. You know, and I I can understand that decision in a lot of ways, but I was more upset with the death of the Imperial cargo pilot than I was Caspian. Yeah, I guess part of it is you've got a guy who you set up as the rebel spy, assassin, whatever. Hard to root for him as the hero. You've got somebody that may as well have been either Princess Leia or um, who was the girl in um, in the newer film? Um, oh. Um, Ray. Yes. Um, so it's it's another cut of that same cloth sort mm-hmm. of a thing. You could argue the, the pilot here was probably the closest to Luke. Mm. The yes. young kid on the hero journey kind of a deal. Yes. Complete with being given his first chance to do something good and something right other than simply survive and make a living. Which is kind of sort of Finn's role in The Force Awakens. True. So, I mean, we've got certain archetypes Mm -hmm. or story needs here. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I really enjoyed about John Jackson Miller's run on, I think, the Star Wars Legacy it was about a 50-issue run uh, set way in the past of the Star Wars universe by Dark Horse. He had characters that were evocative of the archetypes. You had one that was pretty much a con man scoundrel type, but he was shorter, furry, didn't look like, you know. Mm-hmm. 
and he had kind of a uh, a Luke equivalent, you know, sidekick sort of a thing. He took the mechanics of the group dynamic, shuffled the hell out of them mm. to where it was. I don't say unrecognizable, but it was it was very different, mm-hmm. but felt natural. It felt Star Wars. Yeah. Whereas here, the two guys from the monastery, it's like, well, they're kind of an odd choice to kind of tag along. But okay. They were an odd choice until I realized that they're the ones who will have your back. They're the ones who will fight for what's right. Well, again, they were the R2-D2 and C-3PO of the original film or the Han Chewie of Force Awakens. Or uh, Phantom Menace, the Qui-Gon and the Obi-Wan. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I think we could lay out the the different trilogies and kind of draw some very strong parallels. And there's nothing wrong with that. But they were doing what I wanted Caspian to be doing. Again, I never got a clear sense of their motivation either and why. They were trying to live in harmony with the Force. That was all I got from them. They were trying Mm -hmm. to figure it out. No, and it's why they were at the monastery, sure. Yeah. But why were they in this film? Why did they instigate contact? Why did they... they... For me, their whole motivation in everything was trying to live in harmony with the Force. The Force told them to help the girl wearing the necklace with the crystal because the Force was strong in her. I'd have to listen to that first conversation they had again to see if I felt they set that up well. Uh, On the first viewing, I'm going to say... I see where you're coming from, but... Something drew him to her out of that whole crowd. Yeah. I have no idea what it was, but... I think they could have set up better one-movie arcs for the characters. Mm -hmm. I agree. Better implied backstory. I don't like the scene between Caspian and the guy with the injured shoulder when he was finding out about the cargo pilot. Yeah. I think that does bad things for the Caspian character. Well, I think they could have changed the uh, the informant such that Caspian could have done the same thing and wound up more heroic. If Caspian had shot the stormtroopers and saved the informant, Caspian would have been more heroic and yeah. I'd have liked him. They, they could have tweaked but that scene a little bit and improved it a lot. I couldn't reconcile what he did in that scene. But I think they needed to have that scene to have the speech later of we're assassins and we're you know, I think they're, I get what they were trying to do, I get what they did, but it made it hard to root for a lot of these characters. I think they still could have had the were assassins scene, given why he was sent to find her father, and the fact that he nearly did it. It was easy to believe in the past he's done, in the past he's follows, followed doors without question. And that's why she turned on him and said, you're acting and claiming to be no different than a stormtrooper. Too much of the movie was from his perspective, not hers. Yes. And she was nominally the hero of the film. Yeah. And the villains of the peaks were ones we'd seen before. Yeah. Or at least digital replicas thereof. Yeah. And again, it's not a bad film. It's 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 a fun film. Mm-hmm. But it didn't have any of the... Well, I liked the scenery and stuff. It wasn't like the uh, the scene where we go to the clone factory yeah. in the original or the prequel trilogy. It's like, wow, that's that's really cool effects and all that kind of a stuff. There were a few scenes where it's like, okay, now we're going to have, you know, uh, uh, the X-Wing fight in the rain. You know what I mean? It's let's show off the technology or whatever. Yeah. It it hit the right notes. It hit them in the right sequence, but it, it felt almost a little mechanical in places. 
it didn't have quite the heart and soul of a really good Star Wars film. And again, it's not a bad one. Yeah. To me, it's not mandatory viewing for the Star Wars franchise, though. If if you want the full experience, yeah, sure. But if you just want to hit the highlights, no. Um, it's it's a side story, and it, it was billed as such. Yeah. Um, I think if you've never seen the Star Wars stuff, the the whole arc, or you're going to show it to your kids or something like that, I could see doing it starting with The Phantom Menace, go through the prequel trilogy, drop this in, go through the original trilogy. True. Because I think at that point, it plays better. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I'm curious, because I think they're doing a Han Solo film and maybe a Boba Fett one. I forget what the other off ones are, or solo ones are. Mm -hmm. Solo's the wrong term. (laughs) One's a solo, solo film. (laughs) But depending on what the Han Solo film is, because they're already filming it and such, and where that sets up, it could be that that almost would work with this and A New Hope to almost get a mini trilogy. I mean, yeah. they, depending where they set them, they could have a trilogy set between the prequel and the, the first trilogy. It's, it's it's mind-boggling. It is. It's fun. It, the lack of lightsabers uh, didn't help it. It didn't hurt it, but, you know. They had good fight scenes, but they were more from the war story sort of, you know, regular fight scenes, yeah. rebels and trenches, you know, sort of, I mean, not literally rebels and trenches, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it was more like an army film or war film than a Star Wars film Yeah, with the solo hero battles or whatnot. Yeah. And, you know, I missed that aspect of it. Those were some of the scenes that I really enjoyed the most of some of the other films. You know, the fight scene at the, the clone factory, Yoda's fight scene in one of the films. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the other stuff, it was, you had a very clear hero with a very clear kind of fight style or whatever. And it was fun. I like Star Wars for heroes fighting for what's right. Whether or not it's easy, mm-hmm. they fight for what's right. And there was some of that here. There just wasn't as much as I wanted. I guess that's where I'm at. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. I did enjoy it. Again, but, fun film, good yeah. film. Some aspects were, were really terrific. but. Is this one where, man, I really wish we'd seen it in the theater with a big crowd? No, no, not really. Yeah. But a few films kind of fall into that category for me. It was nice to be able to be sitting here at home uh, watching the Blu-ray on the on the projector and be able to, to, no, wait, you know, ask some questions, have some comments back and forth. Yeah. Because there were a few places where it's like, oh, wait a sec, what's going on here? Yes. Again, fun film. Glad we watched it. Uh, got the, the 3D version. May see the 3D at some point. Mm-hmm. Certainly curious about some of the effects uh, and the the bonus footage, particularly if they've got one on how they did Tarkin and some mm-hmm. of the others just finding the time to watch it. Yeah. Hard enough to find the time to watch the film, but... Uh, Very true. Yeah, we did this. We're recording this on the uh, uh, Friday after it was released on Tuesday. And already, I think the, the box of comics I just got from DCBS has the adaptation of the film. It's like I wanted to watch it before reading it, so... Not that I'm current on my comics, I'm a little behind. But anyways. So big. Um, we got a couple other films we'll be watching and stuff. Uh, I'm sure most people saw this, uh, saw Rogue One in the theaters though, but it's Star Wars, we had to go over it. Yeah. So anything else? Does that pretty much do it? I think that does it. Cool.
The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what we've discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.